Bible, please open uh, to the book of Jude. To the book of Jude. Um, we have been in this series now for the last couple of weeks, uh, looking at the book of Jude and how uh, this small, uh, very tiny book here in the New Testament has great implications for us as a church and for the church whole, uh, the universal church uh, here in the world. Now, Jude is a little book with a very broad spectrum of truth, and despite the size of the book, there are some serious and even sobering warnings for the Christian. And we need, uh, really, in some ways, should be shocked by them, but perhaps we might even be scared by some of the things that are talked about in this book. Now, God does not want the Christian to live in fear, but rather know the truth and being alert to the fact that the truth is under attack. Amen, church? Not only is truth under attack, but as we learned last week, apostasy abounds in today's culture, just as it was in Jude's day. Apostasy is alive, it is active, and I think what will alarm us more than anything is who the apostates are. You know, in, in many cases, um, in many cases of an apostate, that the truth, the hard truth is that they operate within the confines of a church. You know, many times they can be people that we know personally or that we know of by name. And what they do is not funny. And what they do is no laughing matter. And so a question uh, that we will tackle as, as this is raised, as we study out this chapter of Jude, is what are the indicators of an apostate? What are the indicators of one who walks in apostasy? And I'm going to give us three indicators here in just a moment. And this will help us to understand and to recognize those who walk in false doctrine and those who teach false doctrine. Now, the very first indicator I need us to look at before we get to uh, the scripture today is this, that they deny Christ and his word. One who walks in apostasy denies Christ and his word. Now, apostasy in its most simplistic form is a denial of truth and a departure of the faith. So if you're sitting out there, you're like, what is this word that he keeps saying over and over and over again? Apostasy is one who denies truth and departs from the faith. Now an apostate is characterized by the denial of truth. The denial of truth. It doesn't matter if it's God's word, God himself, Jesus and Jesus being God and one with God, God's people or God's nature. An apostate always denies anything to do with Christ. Now you may be sitting out there this morning thinking, well, if they deny God, I should automatically recognize that, right, as a Christian? The answer is no. And I'm going to explain to us why. These, these men and women are defectors who appear godly, but in their heart and in their life, they truly deny Christ. And if you direct your attention to the screen in just a moment, you will see that the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, in, is, is, is really addressing this specific manner about the latter time. So if you would go ahead and put that verse up. First Timothy 4 starts out by this. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now leave that verse up there for me. Paul wrote this to Timothy and he marked this specific portion of scripture as a revelation here in this moment from the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul knew that certain dangers would mark the latter times. He knew it. The first was the danger of apostasy. He said there will be some who will depart from the faith. They will depart from the faith. He knew the danger of deception here in Scripture. He said the deceiving spirits. And then last, he knew the danger of false teachings or the doctrines of demons. Now, it has been more than 2,000 years since Paul wrote this about the latter times, but he did not misunderstand his time or our time as a church. History is not, church, please let me... Let me just get this out there. History is not and has not been rushing towards a distant brink that would end this current order. Even in the apostolic times, history had reached that brink and has been running parallel to it ever since. And as it turns out, the latter times describes a broad era and not just a few years. But because of the danger of the latter times, church, we are called to remain faithful to truth. We're called to remain faithful to truth. I've realized um, over the time in ministry that we must keep a dead reckoning on truth and if, if that is lost, if truth is lost in our life, then nothing else really matters because truth is what keeps us in line in our relationship with God. Truth is what makes our marriages work. Truth is what helps parenting. Truth is what helps you be a good coworker and a good employee. Truth is what guides and directs, or should, should guide and direct every decision that you make. And if you lose truth, nothing else really matters. Nothing. It was Adam Clark who said that a man may hold all the truths of Christianity and yet render them of no effect by holding to false teachings which counteract the word of God. I, I'm a... Um, an avid reader. Many of you know that about me, especially those who are close to me. I like to read and study just about anything I can get my hands on so that um, I know. I know what's going on in the world. I know what's going on in in the medical field. Um, But I also like to come across old articles, old articles that were written on specific topics. And I came across one two weeks ago, and I was waiting to share about that article today. In 1997, so 20 plus years ago, an article was written in the U.S. News and World Report. Has anyone ever heard of the U.S. News and World Report? There was an article written in the U.S. News and World Report, and the entire article described clergy, so so members in ministry, pastors and lay leaders, that would rather preach on social justice and world peace than on personal salvation. This entire article was written about churches who won't even touch topics in the Bible because they don't want to offend somebody. They would rather have butts in the seats and money before them than rather, rather than teach them the truth that is found in God's word. This was an article that was written in 1997. Church, I was eight years old when that article came out and things have progressively gotten worse. And that right there is the example of men and women who have departed from the faith and follow their own direction when leading churches and people. And when Paul said that men and women would depart from the faith, he didn't mean that these men and women would lose the ability to believe. He was talking about those who lost the content of what Christians should stand for. 
That's what he was talking about. People who depart from the truth. And when those people depart, they abandon the essential teachings of Christianity. They abandon the essential teachings of Christ that are found in Scripture. And these men and women, Paul said, are influenced. Will you go back to that verse for me? They're influenced by deceiving spirits. They're influenced by deceiving spirits. Now, you may be sitting out there like, what on earth does that mean? Well, deceiving spirits refers to demonic activity. Demonic activity. They are demons, angels that have rebelled against God. And they seek to deceive men and women and to entice us away from truth. That's what that is. That's what a deceiving spirit is. And some of those lies that they speak are so powerful and they have an evident spiritual dynamic behind them. And those lies are crafted and they are promoted by deceiving spirits. But what is it that these deceiving spirits promote? Well, Paul answers that in that verse 2. He says the doctrine of what? It's on the screen. The doctrine of what? Come on, it's up there. Demons, the doctrine of demons. You know, if you study out, if you study out um, angelology, which is the study of angels and, and demonology, the study of demons in theology, if you study out those, you will begin to realize from Scripture that demons are theology majors and they have a system of false doctrine that they like to work with. And we find first... One of the first acts of demonic influence in the Bible was is in Genesis chapter 3. One of the first. It was in Genesis 3. And Satan spoke through the serpent, and he taught Eve that you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. That's what, that was the first deceiving demonic doctrine that we really have concrete in the Bible. And the idea here, really, is that every demonic doctrine has found its way back to those exact roots, and it is this. It is this, church. The idea that we can be gods. The idea that we can be gods, and we can operate independently from the one true God. That's it. They all find their way back to that one place. We see it in the Old Testament when we see the fall of Lucifer from heaven. When we see the fall, the autonomy that he wanted, I want to be my own God. I can be in your place, God. Church, sadly today, there are men and women who willingly embrace falsehood to justify their own sin. They willingly embrace falsehood. And they claim to teach the Bible and what they do is twist scripture to fit their own idea and their own agenda. They make it say what they want it to say. And their conscience at one time would have convicted them of their departure from truth and now it doesn't reply at all. They're seared. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who had a seared conscience it is this, it's as if the nerve endings of their conscience have been burnt and now they're dead to feeling and really the scary thing about what we've been studying in Jude and, and about that verse 
right there is that we should expect more and more people in churches across the world to depart from the faith in the latter times. More and more people will accept false teachings. These people are in churches, but they are not in Christ. They're in churches, but they are not in Christ. And if I could just kind of chase a little bit of a rabbit trail this morning. How many of you in here are a parent, have kids, grandkids, you're an aunt, uncle, you're connected to children and teenagers in some way? Okay. I just want to say something to you for a moment. One of the biggest dangers... One of the biggest dangers that parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and Christians really in general face is raising children in and around church instead of raising them in Christ. It's one of the biggest dangers is raising them around things that look Christian but not raising them up in a godly biblical home that leads them closer to Christ. I love, love, love what Moses was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He called all parents or anyone who was connected to a child to teach these truths that were written upon your heart when you are standing, when you're walking, when you're sitting in your table, when you are laying down, speak these truths. It is our responsibility. Listen, if you're a parent in here, it is not the church's responsibility to disciple your kids. It is your responsibility to disciple your kids. We're here to support you in that journey, but it is not our job. We get your child for one hour every single week. You get them for 50 times that amount in their lifetime. It is your responsibility to to, to disciple your children, to invest in their life. And guess what, church? If we don't, if we don't, We end up with false converts. We end up with butts in the pews that are never changed and transformed by the truth of God's word. And we have people who infiltrate and bring about what this is right here. Doctrine of demons that are inspired by deceiving spirits. I'm off my soapbox. Apostates deny the truth of God's word. The second thing, they seek to undermine spiritual authority. They seek to undermine spiritual authority. Those who are rebellious to spiritual authority are really just showing their true rebellion and it's against God himself. There have been way too many times in ministry where I have pleaded with people to listen. There have been many times in counseling appointments where I have pleaded with people to rethink, to stop, to repent. And sadly, I have seen many people turn away Sadly, I've seen many people turn away. I don't know about you, and I don't know about what your experiences are, but I can tell you this, that it is not the most pleasant thing in the world to confront somebody living in sin. It is not the most pleasant thing to walk with people through their hurt and their pain and through their sinfulness that leads to life change. That is not easy. Discipleship is not easy. It's messy. Discipleship is messy. Ministry is messy. Why? Because many people have a general disregard and disrespect for any person in authority, especially spiritual authority. I don't know about you, but I worked with teenagers for 13 years in youth ministry, and I heard these lines more than I could care to recall. Don't judge me. Don't tell me how to live my life. Who are you to say that to me? I I could 
Countless times I've heard teenagers and adults alike use those same phrases. There are just some people that refuse to be pastored, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. In fact, I go home on some Sundays, and I am grieved to the utmost in my spirit. And my wife and I sit in our room. My we will sit in our room at the end of our bed and we will sob for people that we are connected with that refuse to be pastored. And if you're a Christian in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your heart should break for every person who doesn't want to receive truth. Your heart should break for everyone who rejects and pushes away that truth. And if it's not, then I would beg of you to get on your knees and ask God to break your heart for what breaks his. They seek to undermine spiritual authority in the church. And when they do that, when they have that mentality of you're not, you're not the one that can talk to me. You don't get to judge me. It really kind of grieves my spirit more than just that but because that mentality leads to the third indicator and they, they ultimately damage and ruin other people's lives they damage and ruin other people's lives one who walks in apostasy does untold damage within the church and ultimately ruin and wreck the lives of them and the people around them and it hinders God's kingdom from advancing it's interesting that in the book of Jude Jude starts out with a really warm greeting to these Christians and then he turns very quickly to a sober warning. He sets about giving us three illustrations here in this book about apostasy. We have seen their character in the first two weeks and we've talked about the indicators of an apostate in the first two weeks and now Jude is going to get really real with us for a moment. Why? Because apostasy is a sobering issue and it must be understood by the church. As believers, we sit in this room and we must be sensitive, but we also must be serious-minded to this topic. And so Jude is going to give us three examples this morning to drive the point home concerning apostasy, but really the importance of each one drives home the reality of how God deals with apostasy. And so if you're in Jude, uh, look with me now at verse number 5. He says, now I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the, ju uh, the judgment of the great day. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Man, those are some scary verses, are they not? Some scary examples that we see here. And so the first example I want us to look at this morning is the example of unbelief. The example of unbelief. We're going to probably spend the bulk of our time right here at this one point. You notice how Jude started out verse number 5? Look back with me. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. I want to remind you. 
They were already taught is this specific example. The people in the church, but they needed to hear it again and again and again so they could apply it to their present situation. You know, ideally, ideally every Christian would read these allusions in the New Testament that refer to the Old Testament and say, yes, Jude, I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, if, if you don't know this morning what Jude is talking about here, it shows that you need to deepen your understanding of the things of, the, of God's word. If you don't know what he's talking about right here, God saving people out of Egypt and how he destroys them because of unbelief, then you need to deepen your understanding of truth. But as for the root facts, the fundamental doctrines that we find in Scripture and the primary truths of Scripture, we must from day to day, morning to morning, night to night, we must insist upon those truths. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, we must never say of truth that everybody knows them, for alas, everybody forgets them. He's saying the Christian must always remind themselves and be reminded of truth. We should use the Word of God not only to teach what we could not have otherwise known, but we should also use the Word of God to rouse us to a serious meditation of those things that we already understand. We should speak the gospel to ourselves. We should speak it to ourselves. It was Matthew Henry that said, the Word of God should not be used to suffer us to not grow torpid or cold in our knowledge of the things of God. It was the writer's of the New Testament that often use the nation of Israel to illustrate important spiritual truths for us. You know, we know from the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy that Israel was delivered from Egypt by the power of God, but they did not possess enough faith to enter into the promised land. In fact, many of the Israelites, if you go back and read in the book of Exodus, many of the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt after the exodus occurred. In fact, they cried out and said, why have you brought us to the desert to die? We would rather go back into slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. It's important for us to remember though, this morning, it's important for us to remember that the entire nation of Israel was delivered, but that did not mean that every individual believed. They were all delivered but not every individual believed, and that is a foreshadowing of what we are seeing right now here in this culture. Think about it. Christ died on the cross and received the sins of mankind upon him. He paid for those, sin those sins, but not everyone is going to follow Christ. He paid for your sins, but not everyone's going to follow him. You know, many people in the Old Testament rejected and rebelled against the spiritual authority. Go back and read the first five books of the Bible. They rebelled against Moses. They rebelled against Aaron. They rebelled against Joshua. They rebelled against Caleb. They rejected their line of thinking. And it all brought them to a place where they did not believe that God would deliver them. They didn't believe that God would deliver them. And the example here in Jude is reminding them of a truth they already knew. Despite what they seen, despite what they experienced, the people of Israel did not believe in God. And the result? The result? Death. They were destroyed because of their unbelief. 
They were destroyed, church. They walked in the wilderness for 40 years and didn't get to enter the promised land because of unbelief. And it's recorded and it's greatly discussed in the book of Hebrews chapter 3. So I want you to look to the screens and I want you to follow along with me. Beware, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Stay there. This is pretty strong language from the writer of Hebrews. We often underestimate the terrible nature of one's unbelief. Refusing to believe in God is a serious sin because it shows an evil heart and a departing from the living God is what the writer is saying here. Unbelief, church, I don't want, I don't want you to miss this. It's not going to come to the screen. Unbelief is not the inability to understand. Unbelief is the unwillingness to trust. It's the unwillingness to trust and it is the will of the man and woman, not the intelligence that is involved in faith. In fact, unbelief is not weakness of faith. Unbelief is really opposition to faith. It's an opposition. And if we strengthen our faith as Christians and we avoid the ruin of unbelief in this life, we must go and be around other Christians who will exhort us. Who will exhort us. And I'm talking about serious encouragement in this life. I'm not saying like, hey, your dress looks nice today. Did you get a haircut? That's great. Yeah, those are really awesome things to say to people, but that's not exhortation. Okay, it's not. In fact, we see here in the scripture that we have a responsibility to be around other people and to give and receive exhortation. It's an easy thing. Man, I, I struggled early on in my Christian life when I really surrendered my life to God. I struggled deeply with being judgmental towards other people. I don't know about you guys. Um, I just, being really honest this morning, um, when I really dove into Scripture and I began studying it out and I began to really live a different life after I felt all of these convictions from the Holy Spirit in my life, I would see other people do certain things and I, my immediate thought in the flesh would be like, I'd never do that. Anybody ever, like, listen, don't be pious in church, okay? It's easy to judge and to criticize another person. But that's also not exhortation. If we are out of fellowship with one another, we can't exhort and we can't be exhorted. And when we are out of fellowship, there is much less around us that keeps us from becoming hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now I just want to address the elephant in the room for a moment because it seems to be talked about oftentimes in churches. Some think that Jesus' command in Matthew 7 to not bother with the speck in your brother's eye while you have a log in your own indicates that we should never speak hard truths to our brothers and sisters in Christ. False. 
Jesus told us to deal first with the log in our own eye, but then go and deal with the speck in your brother's. He did not tell us to ignore their speck, only to deal with the speck and the log in the proper order. And that emphasis on the importance of fellowship stands in the face of society's thinking. A United States survey found that more than 78% of the general public and 70% of church-going people believe that you can be a good Christian without ever stepping foot inside of a church congregation or a church building. 78% of the general public and 70% of Christians think that you can be a good Christian without ever attending church. Christian, in here this morning, we must be vigilant against hardness of heart. Vigilant. That hidden sin that you indulge in, that no one suspects because you hide it super well, You're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself. Believing that it really does little harm. You can ask for forgiveness later, right? You can always die to self and surrender to Jesus in the coming days, months, years. Church, your heart becomes harder and you become less and less sensitive to the Spirit. And oftentimes what we cannot see or sense is that your, your hidden sin is what's hardening your heart. You become more and more distant from Jesus and your spiritual danger grows every single day, the sin of unbelief has its roots in deceit. The sin of unbelief has its roots in deceit. Unbelief and sin are deceitful because when we don't believe God, we don't stop believing. We just start believing a lie. I'm going to say that again because I don't think it hit you. Unbelief and sinfulness are deceitful Because when we don't believe God, we don't stop believing. We just start believing a lie. We start believing in a lie and our life is then based upon that lie. If sin came with full revelation and full exposure of all of its consequences, it would be unattractive to us. But those who turn from sin and self and put their life's trust in Jesus are called what, church? Glorious partakers of Christ. Partakers. And that is a whole picture of the Christian life, is it not? Partakers of Christ. Which means that we are partakers in His obedience. Partakers in His suffering. Partakers of His death and His resurrection. His victory, His plan, His power, His ministry of intercession, His works, His glory, and His destiny. The term partaker of Christ for the Christian says it all. Says it all. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, For who, having heard, they rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses, now with whom he was angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey 
So you will see that they could not enter in because of what, church? Unbelief. Do you know 11 times between Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, the writer speaks of entering God's rest. You know, that rest will be deeply detailed in the rest of Hebrews. But here, we see the key to entering rest, and it is revealed belief. It is revealed belief. One might be tempted to think the key to entering rest is obedience, especially if we look at verse number 18. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? But the disobedience mentioned here in Hebrews is an outgrowth of the person's unbelief that was mentioned just after it. Church, unbelief comes first, then disobedience. Unbelief comes first and then disobedience. And in a New Testament context, our belief centers on the superiority of Jesus Christ. The truth of who he is, fully God and fully man. But church, it also centers on his atoning work for us as a faithful high priest. And when we trust in these things, when we make those things food for our souls, we enter into God's rest. You want to know what Israel's greatest failure was? Perseverance. Perseverance. You know, they cross the wilderness trusting in God, and after seeing so many reasons to trust Him, they end up falling short because they did not persevere in faith in God or His promises. Jesus reminded us of that same thought in the parable of the soils with the seeds. And He he cast the seeds on the stony ground and among the thorns that it is not enough to make a good beginning. Real belief perseveres to the end. You know, it's wonderful to make a good start, but how we finish is even more important than how we started. And if we enter into God's rest, then the coming years will only increase our trust and reliance upon Him. If by unbelief we fail to enter in, then the coming years will only gradually draw us away from a passionate, trusting relationship with God. You see, the key word that we keep seeing over and over is unbelief. There's somewhat of a pattern in Scripture with God. He delivers first, and then He destroys. He delivers first, and then He destroys. You know, He sent Jesus to deliver us but destruction is coming. Destruction is coming soon to those who did not believe and they denied. I wonder if we hear the warning this morning. I wonder if we've been hearing the warning these last several weeks. As we've been looking at this, this short book, I wonder if we hear them. Do you, know how, do you know many people stay in the church but in their heart, they really don't believe in these truths. They don't. There are many people sitting in churches today that will enter hell from their pew or their chair. Our knowledge of Christ must not just be an intellectual knowledge of Christ. It must be intimate. It must be intimate. And that's what defines our relationship 
Knowledge alone does not get us to heaven. Belief and intimacy must be present because a life of belief is a life of faithful obedience. Not perfect, but faithful. Not perfect, but faithful. I want you to look at this verse on the screen, or these verses. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's a really hard truth, church. And oftentimes does not sit well on our palate. The sobering reality for us today is that many sit in church and reject the truth and defect back to the world, but they never leave the congregation. They never leave. Maybe they don't teach or minister, but nonetheless, they are walking in apostasy. Most people... Reject, how do I want to say this? Church, more people will reject the gospel than those that receive it. More people will reject the gospel than those that receive it. The greater your exposure to the truth, the more severe your punishment for rejecting. We must ensure that we don't fall into that category. You know, our our behavior and our beliefs must be in harmony. They have to be. It's one thing to be ignorant, and it's another to know the truth and trample it. You know, there's a point where we can simply be fooling ourselves and others, but when it comes to being a true believer, there is an admonishment that we are being given here. Faithful obedience to God's word and a belief in his word and promises brings rest. And so the example of unbelief. The second thing I want us to look at today as we begin to wrap this up is the example of the fallen angels. Look back with me at verse number six here in Jude. And he said, And the angels who did not stay in their own positions of authority, but they left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. You know, what's important for us to keep in mind here is the fact that God judges apostasy and angels are no exception to that. You know, Jude speaks of the angels who sinned, who are now imprisoned and awaiting a future day of judgment. Now, real quick, I don't have time to unpack this and address everything here, but there is some measure of controversy about the identity of these particular angels. We have really two places in the Bible uh, where it speaks of angels sinning. Okay, only two. The first, there was the original rebellion of some of the angels who fell with Lucifer. It was talked about in Isaiah 14 and Revelation chapter 12. 
But the second were the sins of the Son of God that were described in Genesis chapter 6. Those are the two main places. Now, I don't have time to fully unpack everything here, and I don't want to confuse us with the issue at hand, and so the text is very clear. The offense that is spoken about here by Jude is related to some kind of sexual sin. Some kind of sexual sin. The text is also clear that God judged those angels that went against him. They rebelled, they rejected God's rule, and they went outside their bounds and they disobeyed God and engaged in sinful acts. Now these angels, now considered demons, were cast into the pit and are awaiting a final judgment. Now we, we know from scripture that not all demons are in that place. And Satan is not there yet. Keyword yet. Now, the lesson here is that these angels, once in a privileged position, pulled back from God and they pushed into sin and they ended up in the pit of punishment. Church, privilege and position is not a promise that automatically means that we could never pull away from God. And again, is a warning and it's sobering. Rebellion is rejection, and that always results in punishment. Rebellion is rejection, and that always results in punishment. And so we're here this morning, and we must protect our hearts and keep them tender and sensitive to the Holy Spirit through faithful obedience and repentance. Anybody can fall, church, and we've all done it but to fall away completely, willfully, and continually with no desire to come back is a completely different matter. To completely turn your back in total rebellion and rejection, you can't get to that point in your life, or you can get to a point in your life, church, where you're unable to repent, where you're unable. I want us to look now at a few last verses In Hebrews, it says, See to it that no one falls to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." Esau is a prime example from the Old Testament of a person who had opportunity and privilege and promise, but instead pursued uh, instead of pursuing spiritual things, he went after the profane. He went after the secular. He sacrificed his future on the altar of the immediate, and he destroyed his own destiny through chosen disobedience and willful rejection. And when he wanted to repent, what he discovered was that he couldn't. Why? Because of continual, willful rebellion and rejection that ultimately resulted in losing his own ability to repent. We go past the point of no return in this life. And that's the example that we see from the angels. The example of the angels. And the final example is God's fierce judgment. I want you to look back at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
Most of us in here probably know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Would that be an accurate statement? You know, these two cities and the surrounding cities stand as an example of God's judgment. And Jude is referring to the account in Genesis 19 where the homosexual conduct of men, the men of Sodom, is described. But that wasn't their only sin. If you were to read in Ezekiel chapter 16, it says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She was, and her daughter had full of pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Sexual depravity was not only the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it was certainly among the sins of those at Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jude makes it plain. The sins that are described in Ezekiel 16 show that Sodom and Gomorrah were prosperous and they were a blessed area. You don't have fullness of food and abundance of idleness if you don't have material blessing. But despite that great blessing in Scripture from God and their material prosperity, they sinned and they were judged because of it. In Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed with fire from heaven, but that wasn't the end of their judgment by fire. Far worse than what happened in Genesis 19, they suffered the vengeance of eternal fire, is what Jude says. And that example gives us two lessons. First, it assures us that the certain men causing trouble here in Jude will be judged no matter how much they have been blessed in the past. Secondly, it warns us that we also must continue walking with Jesus. If the blessings of the past didn't guarantee their future spiritual state, then neither does ours. When you and I look at these cities You should see God's patience with people and a willingness to postpone judgment. But you also see his ultimate position towards sin and wickedness. You know, the sin of Israel was unbelief. The sin of the fallen angels was rebellion and rejection. And the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the indulgence in wickedness and perversion and unnatural lust. And all of these are signs and symptoms of apostasy. All of them. So you may be sitting in here thinking, worst sermon ever. Pastor, what do we do to contend for the faith with all of the information that you just gave us? What what do we do? I'm going to give you three practical life... I'm not even going to use the word steps. I'm going to give you three practical things you can do in your life. What can we do to contend for the faith? First, we must know doctrine and expose error. We must know doctrine and expose error. Please don't hear me when I say expose error. Don't be busting up into people's churches and yelling at the pastor from the pulpit on the ground, all right? No doctrine. We need to study the word of God. We need to prepare to defend using Scripture. And I don't mean twisting one verse to fit our defense. I'm talking about studying Scripture so that we can defend these truths. Second, you need to live out your faith on a daily basis. You know, living godly clears up the doubt and proves our claim to faith in Jesus Christ. Live out your faith on a daily basis. That's the second one. The second one. 
second one. Perfect. And then the last one is this, that we should never lose sight of the destiny of those who deny Christ. We should heed the warning. We should pray. We should be patient with those who seem to be falling away. And we should plead. We should plead with them. I don't know about your situation I'm in your relationship with the Lord but I am becoming more and more aware of the lifeless bodies around me I'm becoming more and more aware of the people who are lost and hurting I'm becoming more and more aware of the need to share the gospel every opportunity I get. Why, why, why should we never lose sight of the destiny of those who deny Christ? Because there should be a burden upon you every single time you encounter someone who's a non-believer. Their soul is at stake. Every moment that we interact with other people. Their soul is at stake. I was sharing with our prayer team this morning. My wife had to leave out of town on an emergency. And her grandfather is, was placed in the hospital and hospice was brought in yesterday or they were called in yesterday. And this man has been a constant uh, father figure in my wife's life. He's been really one of the only constant father figures in my wife's life. She looked to him like he was a father. He took me in when we got together over 16 years ago and he treated me like a part of the family. And they were told yesterday that this was the end. Essentially, say your goodbyes now. And he's not a believer. We've spent most of our relationship together sharing the gospel with him, talking about the Bible. And he's a devout Catholic. He's always rejected everything that we've ever said. And it's situations like this where he's not even lucid. And you're begging of God for an opportunity to share the gospel one more time. And it happens and they still reject. Man, your heart should break every single time someone denies Jesus Christ. Your heart should be broken every single time, church, that your child or your grandchild or your niece or your nephew doesn't want to step foot into a building that that preaches the gospel. Your heart should be retching for your coworkers and your bosses that reject the name of Jesus.
church, the, the Christian life is about giving up our own wants and desires to embrace the wants and desires of God. And sometimes those desires make us do hard things. And sometimes those, those desires make us embrace things that we don't want to embrace. And sometimes those, those, those desires of God make us change our thinking. We're living in the last days, church. Many will fall away. But there are still many that need to hear those truths. There are still many. We win, church, for sharing the truth. And hearts get changed. And we win... For sharing the truth even if it gets rejected. If seeds get planted and they water and they grow, we win. Don't ever stop sharing the gospel. Don't stop sharing the gospel, church. There are so many people right here in our community that have no hope. Your neighbor could be lost. The person that walks in to your place of business could be lost. And so I want to close with this one question to you. Do you have a hunger so deep for the things of God that you're burdened for every person that you interact with? That you're burdened for their soul and if not, I, I would beg of you as your pastor to get on your face before God today. I would beg of you. Never lose sight, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just come to you this morning and we just thank you for your truth. We thank you for the abundance of wisdom that we find here in your words, God. And I ask that you would give us the strength and the encouragement to follow in, in a faithful obedience to them. God, that we would be a people that would embrace truth. That we would be a people uh, that would love other people. That we would be a, a people of, of grace and mercy. That we would be examples, God, instruments and tools in your hand. I would ask that you would give us your eyes so that we can see other people. I ask that you would give us your feet, God, so that we would go when we're prompted to go. I ask us that you would give us your hands so they can be used to minister grace and mercy. God, we love you. We thank you for everything that you do. We just ask that you would give us your strength as we have divine encounters this week and in the weeks to come. 
God, set, set us in places where you need us to speak the gospel to lost and hurting people. Set us in places where there is someone or a family or people without hope so that we can bring hope to hopelessness. God, I would ask that you would begin softening hearts for those that we would interact with in the coming weeks. Holy Spirit, guide our lips. Give us the words to speak from your truth. And I just ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.